Our scripture lesson today comes from the book of Amos. Mark, there we go. The book of Amos, chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, See, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never pass by them again. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid to waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with sword. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Between services, someone asked me what I was going to do about the heat situation in the sanctuary. Well, I didn't have a tool belt on. I was wearing my robe, and I just said, well, we, we're doing everything we can. You know, sometimes when people want to make preachers be a little bit too responsible for things like bad weather or bad conditions in the sanctuary, what I try to do is remind people is, look, a preacher primarily is into sales, not management, okay? <laughs> One thing good about being a little cold, very few people fell asleep in the first service. <laughs> All right. What would you do if you won the lottery? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, this was, in this story, a real question asked by a real woman pastor in Detroit. She'd been serving there for about five years. It was certainly the poorest neighborhood she had ever lived in. But every week she gathered a group of women. They um, shared, they prayed, they studied the Bible together. Um, two of them were working three jobs. Several of them shared apartments with friends to make things work. Um, they had different stories, but all of them had two things in common. They were women of faith and they were poor. What would I do if I won the lottery? A woman in the group repeated the question and she paused and she said, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd buy a bunch of easy chairs for the laundromat. She said, you know the laundromat. There's only three chairs there and two of them are broken and one of them so bummed out, it'd be better just to sit on the dryer and burn your you-know-what. <clears throat> so um, think about that. You wouldn't, wouldn't you expect to answer a little more grandiose than that? What, what would you do if you won the lottery, a bigger apartment, exotic vacation, maybe a new car? The woman, woman pastor said she was not surprised that answer because she had lived among these women and she saw that this is usually what they thought of first, everybody else. Uh, yes, it wouldn't surprise her. This woman would think about all her tired friends dragging themselves into the laundromat and not having something to sit on to take the load off. The woman pastor went on and said, look, for years there has been a almost fixed kind of chasm between me and the poor. She said, we may have lived in the same town, but we lived in different worlds, but not anymore. She said, I, I know their stories. A lot of my assumptions are gone. And she says, now I know that, yes, these poor women can teach me something about being thankful, being generous. 
Now I begin that story about this fixed chasm that exists sometimes because that's what has Amos upset and that's what brings him into the town, okay? This chasm between the haves and the have-nots, this chasm that's become so fixed that it's like some people are now outside the circle of care and concern. Oh my goodness. When Amos came to town and he got on a stump, while wow, it's like a shootout in the old west, everybody ran for cover. The beautiful people were his favorite target, cocking one eye on them. Um, he described them as sleek and tanned, lying by heated pools. But then he cocked his other eye on the, um, well, the pasty face of the starch-fed child, the old woman fumbling in her pocketbook for some food stamps. It's kind of interesting. This was a time of unbelievable prosperity in Israel. Don't think that times were hard. They had had 40 years of peace and prosperity, mainly because Assyria, the big bully on the block, had troubles of her own. So now they have these years, no cold or hot wars to fight. And during that lull, the nation grew, but something else grew, the disparity between the rich and the poor, wider and wider. Some people, oh my goodness, they ate veal medallions just soaked in mushroom sauce while others ate wheat sweepings off the floor. But the worst thing was the alienation between the two groups. They didn't see that they were kin anymore. And the unbalance between them, it just tilted the scales of justice right over. Amos. You know where he's from? He's from a little town called Tekoa, T-E-K-O-A. Does that ring a bell with some of you Methodists? Our, our camp? That's where that name came from, Tekoa. Southwest of Jerusalem, if any place was ever the backside of nowhere, it would be Tekoa. Now, when Amos left Tekoa and came to Jerusalem, don't think he came with a lot of credentials that made him a well-known prophet. What did he have going for him? I think he had two things. He was a man of the land. Okay. He was a trimmer of sycamore trees, something of a farmer, and he was also a shepherd. And as a man of the land, his talk was straight talk. What he saw, he felt, what he felt, he thought, what he thought, he said, be no nonsense in his language. Second, he had a keen sense of vision. George Adam Smith said the area around um, Tekoa for a shepherd, it would be like a school of vigilance because um, it was a barren land, but there were wild dogs and wolves about. And if a shepherd was going to protect the flock, oh, you couldn't miss a single sound or a single bit of motion. He saw it all. And this is what happens. He comes into Jerusalem one day. He's taking it in. And what does he see? He sees a builder using a plumb line, you know, plumb line with the bob at the bottom, a plumb line to... Um, keep the lines of the building straight. It's a well-used device. It's been used through the years to keep things level, to keep things plumb. Last year, I was able to go with one of our work teams down to Lumberton. We had this job of completely replacing from the joist on up um, this large floor. It was the largest room in the house. And well, we got there and I knew it had been water damaged, but to tell you the truth, well, it, it looked pretty good at first. It looked like everything was plumb, but it wasn't. If you had put a marble on that floor covering, it had rolled right to the corner. 
And luckily there were some people in our group knew a lot more about these things than I did. And with the skillful use of levels and shim, by the time we put the new floor, the whole room now was brought back, not just to looking like it was in line. Oh, but it was really in line. That's Amos. He, um, he sees something and he screws on his spiritual imagination and he hears the voice say, what's that, Amos? Um, well, God, I think we call that a plumb line. Yes, it's a plumb line. And Amos, this is what I'm doing. I'm throwing my plumb down, putting it down here to show my people that they have become a wall out of line. Yeah. Isn't it interesting the Hebrew root for the word justice is straight, straight. It's like God saying my justice is the plumb line that falls down into the human situation. What's out of balance, what's crooked, what's out of line. Well, if Amos came and dropped his plumb line among us today, I'd probably say preach much the same sermon, right? Um, I don't think he would talk just about the disparity between the rich and the homeless. I, I think he would even talk about the working poor. He would probably mention the, the woman who's a cashier during the graveyard shift. She would rather have another shift, but she's not been offered one. And because she has to work the graveyard shift, she has to leave two children on a neighbor's couch. But she's not complaining. She wants and she needs the work. And here's her hope. If she works hard, she can impress the manager. And someday he will increase her hours. And she'll have something called full-time. She'll have benefits. What she doesn't know, what she doesn't know, is there's not a chance of her ever increasing her hours. Because corporate has said to the manager, keep it all part-time. Keep them all part-time. You see, it's, it's just... It's tilted against her. It's a plumb line, a reference point. Our way is getting out of kilter with God's ways. I want to tell you this little story. It's a simple story, but I think it carries a couple of the hidden sins that lead to us getting our culture, getting ourselves out of line. True story. A woman goes to this cafe She's looking forward to having a nice cup of coffee and eating some of the cookies that she has brought with her. So she sits at the table and she starts to read. She's enjoying her cup of coffee. Well, not real happy about it, but there are no seats left and a man comes in. And so he's sitting at the, at the other seat and he's ordering a cup of coffee. And then after a while, she's read a little bit and then she reaches for a cookie. And you know what he does? She sees him reaching for a cookie. Not too happy about that, but she goes on reading. A few moments later, she reaches for a second cookie. You know what he does? He reaches for a second cookie. Whoa, now she's angry, and she is um, glaring. And while she's glaring at him, he reaches and gets the last cookie and breaks it in half and smiling offers the other half to her. Oh, my goodness. She's beyond glaring. She's in a huff now. She gets her stuff and leaves the table. Now she's at the cash registers and she's paying for her cup of coffee. And as she opens her purse, this is what she sees. An unopened package of cookies. Do I need to repeat that? She sees what? 
an unopened package of cookies, yeah. A couple of hidden sins in the story. We see the people before us or the person before us as the other, somebody disconnected from us. Oh, particularly when the other is from a different sampling of life. When we don't see how our lives are quilted together, we erect barriers. And what happens to the man in the story? He's the other, the threat, who needs and wants, she thinks, what she has, right? Second hidden sin. It's what prosperity does to us. When times are good, well, desires just go crazy and haywire. We want more and more, and we often want more and more than what we need. And so we fixate on what we can get and what we can keep. And like the woman, we fixate on who owns what rather than sharing what lies before us. Now just flip the story around. Just flip it around. What if the cookies had been her cookies, okay? What if they had been her cookies all along? Couldn't she have taken the bread, broke it, blessed it, shared it? See, it's all so easily, insidiously, we get ourselves out of kilter with God's ways. Look, I, I don't expect um, society in general to want to talk about some of these things. But we do. I do. I don't think because we're better than society in general or we're just perfect people, but because our story, we know, we've been chosen, we've been called. We've been called to be the people who take our package of cookies, our lives, our interests, our resources, and do what we can to make anybody and everybody's story come out right. You know that who Amos was, you, you know who really it just made him so mad he just couldn't stop talking about it? It was the religious institutions of his day. He just mocked their solemn, pious assemblies and all their false grain and rituals. He said, that's nothing when you never lift a finger for the cause of human justice. Nothing. It's like Amos was saying, don't you know you've been chosen? You were the method. You were the means. You were the delivery vehicle as the people of God, of God's justice and goodness, period. Yeah. I don't think this morning we can forget the haunting words of Jesus there at the end of Matthew. He told us when the streets are all rolled up and the switches have been turned off, the Creator will come and hold us and count one question. What did you do about human need? Well, you know, if Amos was here preaching his plumb line sermon, I would say, go easy on this crowd. Because, I mean, you're preaching to, to the choir in many ways. I mean, there, there are a lot of people in this room that have put themselves to the task of trying to struggle in the areas of the root causes of poverty. Well, there's all kind of people in this room that have been a part of delivering programs and social justice in this town. Right, just start naming some of them. ABCCM, Mana Food Bank, Meals on Wheels, Room in the Inn, Haywood Street, Cairo's Prison Ministry, Congregations for Children, and the list goes on and on. And some of you have known You've known the best side of those kind of ministries where it becomes not ministry to, but ministry with. With. You see, that's when that fixed chasm begins to dissolve. Social justice ministry 
has always been at its best when it restores people to community with God, with each other. When we welcome people into the human club that has one requirement, our recognition that all belong, that all belong. I know some of you in doing that work and joining God in that struggle to get the scales of justice that have been tipped back in balance. There have been moments of wonderful joy and reward, but probably also been moments of disappointment. This is not easy work. It's, answers aren't always clear cut, are they? You know, I was thinking about it this week, with what we're talking about here this morning. The issues surrounding poverty, they involve every fabric of the human economy and community. There are just no easy answers, are there? And this is what happens. I guess I'm being a little biographical here. Maybe I'm speaking for you too. At times when you put hammer and chisel to some of these tasks and you want the trends to change and you don't see much changing, you get discouraged, you get tired. Do you ever get tired of surefire programs that fall flat? of preventions that don't prevent, of solutions that don't solve, of panaceas that don't pan out, of um, reforms that seem to change nothing. Now, when that mood begins to hold sway in me, this is what I do. I go back to a wonderful memory I have of a woman named Miss Doris White. When I knew her, she was about 35 years of age. She's in her mid-30s. She was the executive director of the Migrant Ministry Program in Central Florida. It was centered around some of those um, kind of farm and grove towns around Orlando, Oveda, um, Tildenville, Apopka, Mount Dora. And um, she was 35 years of age, and she was directing the program. She had grown up. As a, as a child of migrant workers. Well, she was a migrant worker. She told me at five years of age she was picking oranges during the winter and she would be in Delaware during the summer picking cucumbers. She showed me a little place that she spent most of her growing up when they were in Tildenville. It was a little cinder block building. Eight of them lived in there. Uh, one window, one door. Think about that. Central Florida summer. Whew. Somehow. Somehow she rose out of abject poverty. She went to Florida State University, got a master's in sociology, and what did she do? She came back to the migrant camps, okay? So for three summers, I took a group of senior high youth two times a week to work out there as volunteers in, in the programs that were there. I felt like I got to know her pretty well. You know, we had had some conversations. We talked about the rises and the dips, the ups and the downs, and she knew, boy, she knew the cycle of poverty. She knew the stories, the litany. You know how it goes, underprivileged parents have underprivileged children who become underprivileged parents who have, under, who have become, become, and have. And I said, Doris, I know you see some things change, but you see some things that just don't ever seem to bend. And how do you, how do you deal with it? And she paused. She paused so long, I thought, I'm not going to get an answer. Oh, but she gave me an answer. Two things. She said, first of all, gratitude. She said, gratitude. Look, she said, 
I was growing up out here in Tildenville and a group of people came out here and said, you're going to have a library. And then they came back in the afternoons and they said, we're going to have some reading programs and some tutorial programs. And she said, year after year, people came here and all of a sudden I had a window to larger possibilities. She said, gratitude and joy. And this way I get to maybe pass the gift on. She said, second thing. She said, Rob, I don't think we're in the struggle by ourselves. I, I think God is in it with us. And then she loosely quoted Martin Luther King. It's not a bad week for me to loosely quote him. This is what she said. She said, you know, he reminded us, look, um, if, if you can run, then surely run. If all you can do is walk, then walk. If all you can do is crawl, then crawl. But for goodness sake and God's sake, keep moving forward because God is moving forward with us. Did you hear that? With us. That, that was a big part of her hope. How about Amos? Sounds in a bad mood, doesn't he? Remember I said he misses no details and comes into town and he sees the plumb line. Oh, but one day he was walking through a field. You know what he saw? A rushing stream and he saw a waterfall. And once again, he screwed on his spiritual imagination and he heard the voice of the Spirit say, let justice, let justice roll on like mighty waters and um, righteousness flow like what? An ever-flowing stream. Ever-flowing stream. Amos was convinced that the justice of God, you, you can't stop that any more than you could stop water falling over Niagara Falls. He starts with a word of judgment. He ends with a word of promise. Look, um, what we're talking about here today, wow, there are no simple or easy answers, but I know this, we're to be in the struggle. We don't have to do it by ourselves. We can be a part of a community like this. I know this much. I know we have to keep throwing our lives into the stream. And I know this, it's ever flowing. Let us pray. Oh God, your ever-flowing mercy and grace has caught up with us, has brought us to this place. You have loved us and redeemed us and called us and claimed us. And we know that one of the things you put before us is to look at a world that sometimes gets crooked and gets out of balance and, and to join your work in doing what we can to make the story come out right, not just for some but for all, to be the people who believe there's no final joy for any of us until there is joy for all. In Jesus' name, amen.